welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have on Julia Keller. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, novelist, and teacher. She has a PhD in English literature from Ohio State University and has taught at Princeton University, University of Chicago, and the University of Notre Dame. She was the chief book critic and a staff writer at the Chicago Tribune for many years before quitting the world of daily journalism to write books. Her new book, available now, is called Quitting, A Life Strategy, The Myth of Perseverance, and How the New Science of Giving Up Can Set You Free. Welcome, Julia. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Absolutely. And then so to start, as we usually do with a passage from Julia's book, Julia wrote, we're still informed on a regular basis via podcasts and moms that quitting is proof of a weak character of a lack of narrative of a a lack, I'm sorry, of a lack of initiative and follow through. Quitting means you'll never succeed, never amount to anything. Many of the people I interviewed for this book were happy to talk about resigning from a job, getting a divorce, or changing course in any one of the dozen, or any one of a dozen ways. But they bristled at the Q word. I didn't quit, they'd say in a huff. I just left one situation for another, okay? Um, okay. Perseverance, by contrast, still sports that sparkling reputation. It's earnestly praised in the aforementioned podcasts and, ma- and manifold motivational speeches, and an infinite reel of YouTube lectures and, and an eternity's worth of TED Talks. That that the kind that get millions of views. Slogans that extol it are emblazoned on workout gear. Self-help is a robust worldwide business earning an estimated 11 billion annually. Books that recommend grit are bestsellers. Yeah, oh, I can't wait to get into that. As they declare with gusto, the doggedness is good and quitting is bad, very bad. Your future, these manifestos maintained, is totally in your own hands. If you work hard and follow a rigorous plan, and most of all, if you do not quit, you win. If you give up, though, you fail. Furthermore, you deserve to. So I love that. And that is by far one of my favorite passages from the book. And so I think a lot of the times, and I mean, there's so much to get into, man. So it's kind of even hard to know where to start because there's so much great, uh, so much sort of juicy details here. But with the thing that I, and so I'm a psychotherapist, you know, for anybody who doesn't know. And uh, yeah, so, and a lot of, and a lot of what I encounter is that sort of persistence where, you know, on the one hand, and we've had, I'm not going to get into this too much, but we had a, a author, Kenan Sheldon on. And so for Kenan Sheldon, he argues that free will and the sense of hope is really important to mental health. I do agree with him, but oftentimes on the converse, on the other end, you have people who essentially fundamentally loathe quitting and they also personalize it where the idea is it's like, it's not so much that I can't, it's, I don't want to, I'm not a good person. I'm not good enough. I'm a disappointment, etc. So Julia, can we start talking a little bit about how that came to pass? Because, you know, thinking about this in terms of human nature, I mean, and we can get into the research about animals, which is uh, which I really love. Uh, we 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 quit, right? This is just a part of who we are. So how did it get to the point where humans not only started to loathe quitting, but it started to loathe themselves for it? You know, that's exactly right. What you're getting at there is really at the at the core of the book, which is how we feel about ourselves and how we kind of characterize our lives when we're, and I think we are so hard on ourselves because of this terrible societal insistence that quitting is bad, that quitting means, and quitting and giving up means you have failed somehow. Um, I trace it back to the 19th century. In the middle of the 19th century, a man named Samuel Smiles wrote a book called Self-Help with illustrations of character and conduct. His basic premise was that it's all in our hands. If you work hard, you will succeed. If you don't work hard, you will fail. Simple formula. Therefore, if you are a failure right now, if you're not making as much money as you like, if you're not happy, if you're not it's all on you. It's all your fault. And one of the points I try to make is that it's far more nuanced than that, that Mm -hmm. in effect, our lives, yes, somewhat in our hands, but also things do happen. In fact, I have a chapter just titled that things just happen. And they do. Uh, People whose whose homes are are ripped away and destroyed by a hurricane didn't didn't bring on the hurricane. They didn't summon the bad weather. Uh, We have things that happen to us all the time. People get terrible diseases that were not based on any lifestyle choices they make things that just happen. We all know people like that who are struggling with that. And I just don't know what good it does to blame ourselves or to blame others or to this this blaming idea that somehow if you haven't stuck with a course, if you haven't been the most persevering person, then somehow um, you deserve shame and, and, and ridicule. Um, I think it's really quite insidious in our culture now. And I've only seen it accelerate as the self-help movement that, that you alluded to that I kind of take to task. In some ways, I guess you could see my book as a self-help book. I didn't intend it that way, but I, I do get, get mail from people. I get email from people saying, so should I quit my job? Should I do this? Should I do this? As if somehow I'm some sort of guru. And I'm certainly not. The only thing I would say is whether you do or whether you don't, whether it works out or whether it doesn't, it needs to be your decision. You have some autonomy. 
Uh, in fact, I found a great line the other day in the um, the novel, The Midnight Library. I don't know if you know it by Matt Hay. He's a British writer. He has a wonderful line in there in which he says, we can choose our choices, but we can't choose our outcomes. Oh, and I yeah. thought, that's, that's it. That's exactly right. And, you know, with your um, your profession of psychotherapy, I mean, I find that quite interesting because I very much an amateur, but looking at it as how can we help people in their lives? We can't all always have the things that we want, but by looking at quitting as a life strategy, instead of some, somehow a, a, a capitulation, somehow a withdrawing and a failure, if we look at it instead as a strategy, I think that might go a long way toward accepting ourselves and even finding that joy, even when things don't work out because they're not going to, I mean, they may, but they also may not. So it's, um, it's something that I've had to come to terms with in my own life too, having quit, just like all of us quit several things, quit jobs, quit relationships, but sometimes you have regret, sometimes not all of our experiences are different, but they are the same in the sense that under that rubric of quitting bad, persevering good has been quite limiting and I think quite dispiriting too. So that's why I wrote the book is to trace the history of this negative idea about quitting and also, also to suggest ways of going forward that don't include um, buying a self-help book and, and following steps one through 25. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in what ways would you say quitting can be beneficial? Because a lot of like, just like you said, a lot of people take that idea of uh, persevering, you know, you're going through some sort of stuff, suffering, uh, struggle, you think that, okay, I, I need to push through this, right? Like there's that old Winston Churchill, uh, quote, if you're going through hell, yeah. keep going. Keep right? going. Right. And, and yeah. And for some people, they, they find they really resonate with that. I mean, even I myself at times have resonated with something like that because I, I question Sometimes I've had the feeling of wanting to quit something, right? But then sometimes I, I, with like a little bit of self-awareness, I look at myself, I'm thinking, what's really causing me to feel that way? Is it something physical going on with me? Is it environmental, maybe something with my family that's kind of burning me out a little bit and it's spreading to work or something like that? Is the work itself actually burning me out? And then actually I should examine that and that's something I should really quit. And so I guess where I'm building towards is, uh, I know I asked what are the benefits of quitting, but uh, what would you say are what, what would you say is that distinction between uh, healthy yeah, quitting? Yeah, I was gonna say good and bad quitting. Yes, yeah. yes, no, 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 that, that's exactly right. Certainly, um, there are times when quitting is not the right strategy when you should stick with something. As you say, sometimes you can have a minor annoying day. It doesn't mean that you quit your job every time there's a slight annoyance. You know, every time your yeah. uh, your boss raises an eyebrow, that's it. I'm out of here. I made a joke once. I was giving a talk once and I gave it, used a joke and I said, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that when you, when you get home after listening to me proselytize on behalf of quitting, that you pull into the driveway, you know, pull out your cell phone and text to your spouse. Okay, honey, I'm out. Like, no, 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 that's not, that's not it at all. Um, as you say, you made me do it. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> there are times when we, when we do need to, to stick with a, a, a particular course that we're on. And then there are times when you shouldn't. An example I like to use is that my, um, I go to um, a, a fitness, it's a, it's a one hour fitness thing. I do several hours a week. Worst, the hardest thing in the world is to be like on that treadmill or on that, on that bike or on that strider and wanting to quit and just feeling, and, and of course, if you did quit, then the workout, you're not going to have your workout. But what I like to say is what I found is a way to use quitting is I, somehow when I think to myself, I can quit, I can quit whenever I want. They don't own me. They're not the boss of me. I'm paying them. I can quit whenever I want. And because I can quit, I don't. Because I know I have the freedom to do it. I don't. It's like, yes, I can. I don't want to. Um, and the larger point, of course, I make in the book is that quitting is indeed a life strategy that other animals around us use all the time. They're able to do it um, with great fluidity and they do it constantly. I use the example of honeybees. I use the example, well, really any, any creatures in, in nature other than man, other than humankind, does it all the time. The finches on Galapagos Island when they, mm -hmm. if they spend too long and they spend too much energy getting a particular seed out in the middle of a particular weed, they will perish because they have a very thin margin of survival. They don't sit and worry about how is this going to look? How, are my friends going to call me a quitter or not? It's like, no, they need the food to survive. So why do we pile up all of these negative associations on top of quitting? Why do we do that? When we know, just like a finch knows, just like a mouse knows, just like a honeybee knows, when to quit, when to change course. And we know our brains are stay nimble and stay flexible when we do it. So why don't we do it? And that's the point back to your, your, your first question. We don't do it because of all these negative associations that are culturally determined. 
that mm. are kind of piled on top of it. And again, I believe it comes from the 19th century when the Industrial Revolution was just getting started and mm. when there was a, a bigger and bigger disparity between the rich and the poor. I mean, in centuries before, if you were born to wealth and royalty, you that's it, you were rich, and then there was a vast poor at the bottom. But with the coming of the Industrial Revolution, even nobodies could sometimes rise to the top. You had people acquiring great fortunes who were not born to wealth and privilege, who were not royalty, were not nobility. So thinking people and caring people, people who looked at the world and wondered why, why are some people uh, you know, lying in squalor in a, in a gutter, in a, in a slum, and other people are living in a palace? How do we explain that to ourselves? And looking at quitting as a negative was one way to explain it, because you could always say, well, it's quite simple. The people at the top worked hard. The people at the bottom didn't. It was a way of explaining the disparities and the inequities in the world to ourselves. And then the self-help movement came along. As I said, Smiles' book was um, the very first one you know, to use the phrase self-help in, in the course of a book. And of course, since then has come the birth of all of these, these movements. And they all have at their core, do it this way, don't quit, and you'll be a success. And if you aren't a success, well, it's not the fault of the book. It's not the fault of the, of the 25 steps you didn't do. It's mm. your fault because you quit too soon. And yet, as I said, I really maintain that quitting is, well, I only maintain it. I, I talked to many neuroscientists who back me up that yeah. it's what keeps our brains flexible and nimble is the choosing of one path over another, the stopping and starting, the pause and the pivot. Our brains like to stay in motion. They like to stay active and choosing another path, making that decision that the present path is not a particularly fortuitous one. That's what, and then going to another keeps our brains active and in motion. We know the whole brain, the smallest thing we do, picking up a coffee cup or you know, using a computer keyboard, the smallest gesture we make, you know, scratching your forehead, all of that requires basically all of our brain to work all in concert. You know, all these, all these 86 billion neurons, which is what's in the average brain, all working together. So quitting really requires us to use our brains in a very creative way and decide what's the best strategy. If I stop here, what will I do then to consider options and to move forward? So it's beneficial from a, from a nature standpoint, from a logistical standpoint, it gets us where we want to go. And it's also beneficial from a psychiatric standpoint, I would argue, and a spiritual standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it got me thinking, wow, man. So like a lot of times, and, I, and I've and i been prone to doing this too, so I don't want to just say it's everybody else. So in therapy, we kind of have this idea where like, let's say if therapy doesn't work, oh, it's because the patient quit. Like, you know, oh, if you just, you know, if you stuck with it, if you just kept coming to sessions, like, of course, treatment would have worked out. You didn't have to stop. Right. But you know, it's like, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think a lot of times we'd have to admit that we're not as helpful as we think we are. So yes, on the one hand, we could say, yes, that person quit. And that's obvious. Right. But if we're looking at all of the factors kind of accompanying that, and I'm not saying a lot of this stuff isn't difficult. Obviously, it can be difficult work in times. I mean, that's kind of the point. But my thing is, and my point is to say that I think for a lot of us to acknowledge sometimes that it's not so much that the other person just quit. You also weren't willing or not willing, but you weren't able to help them. It's sometimes even unwilling, maybe if you're getting defensive or whatever, but you know, you weren't able to help them like you could. So therefore that contributed to them quitting. And also sometimes people quit for good reason. Maybe therapy's become too hard. Maybe for them, it's, let's say it's not kind of fitting into their lifestyle anymore. Maybe they feel like they really have tried and it doesn't, you know, it hasn't been as fruitful as it could have been, etc. But it's just so interesting that now I even think about quitting. And it's just sort of pejorative, where on the one hand, we call kind of like other people's quitters, because in some ways, it makes us feel like we're not like them, or, you know, there's a kind of distinguishing yeah. element there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, we also do it to protect ourselves to say like, well, you know, I I'm a good therapist. It's just that you're a bad patient. If you just didn't quit therapy, I wouldn't be feeling so terrible right now. This is your fault. So it's kind of interesting how like quitting is used as this thing, not only just to shame, shame ourselves, but also to shame other people people too. I think that's, I think that's really, really true. We do use it. There, that shame element. That's what, as I began to explore this and talk with people, it really did astonish me how deep that shame runs. When you ask people about the things that they've quit, it was hard for them to talk about. Everybody had a quitting story. I mean, I talked to hundreds of people and the minute I said a quitting story, it was like, Oh, let me tell you they, I would hear the stories and the shame element. That's what I guess surprised me because they're you know, when you quit something, you don't like to tell people right away. And the worst thing is a friend will ask, well, how is such and such going? How is that new class going? How is that, that cooking class you're taking? I mean, it could be something trivial or it can be something quite profound. You know, how are you and so-and-so getting along? It's like, well, actually we're, you know, we're, not we're not together anymore, that sort of thing. So it, it can go from the trivial to the profound. And there is that shame element. And that's what really spurred me onward in my inquiries was why, where does that come from? And how do we get rid of it? Because shame never helped anybody ever. 
You know, it's, it's like the worst thing in the world is to feel shame about something because in it, to me, shame is just complete inertia. What do you do yeah. with it? Shame keeps you stuck and keeps you sitting there. Whereas if you think of quitting as an active, lively, flexible strategy, a life strategy, that's a, that's a forward propulsive kind of idea that kind of gets you unstuck. It's the opposite of stuck. It's like, this didn't work. Try something else. I was just reading an essay the other day by the wonderful novelist, uh, Geraldine O'Brien. And she has a line in there where she says, if to, her advice to young writers, she says, do something. If it doesn't work out, do something else. Now, I know that sounds kind of silly, but on the other, that's really in a nutshell, do something. It may not work out. And then you do something else. So there is no shame in quitting and reconfiguring and recapitulating and reconnoitering and saying, all right, not here, now over there. Mm -hmm. No, I, I definitely agree with that. There's like something that uh, I say, probably someone else has said this before too, but I like to think of it as a as an equation, right? Let's say you have X plus Y equals Z or something. Well, if you, if you uh, keep doing the same things, you're always going to get the same result to that equation. But if you keep changing around one or more of the variables, yeah. no matter what, you'll always get a different result. And at least even though you don't necessarily know the outcome of your choice, just to... Uh, refer to what you were saying earlier, um, at least you can guarantee yourself a different result by playing around and trying these different things. You know, I love that. That, that has a kind yeah. of a, almost a scientific component. You think of like Edison trying to find a synthetic rubber. He went through 16,000 plants. He would try them and try this one, this one, making one tiny minute change, you know, realizing that if, and, and even if, if this one isn't quite working, maybe I can change the molecular structure here, do that. Just as you say, you're always going to get a slightly different outcome, incremental. And that's why I also advocate incremental quitting. You know, I call it quasi quitting, which right. means that you don't have to completely, you know, fling down your apron if you're quitting your 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 serve, server job in a, in, a, in a cafe and say, that's it, I'm out of here. Quasi quitting is, I, I call it like a rheostat dial, you know, with a light. It doesn't have to be a toggle switch on or off. You can make that incremental change, which speaks to your point as well. You can make tiny incremental changes. And each time you're getting closer or further away from where you want to go, and you'll be able to measure that. So it does give it a kind of a scientific patina, which I think is helpful. I know for me, if I, if I think of something having a basis in science, by which I mean measurable results and, and results that are repeatable. I mean, that's, that's what a scientific experiment is, a thesis, and then you try it, it either works or it doesn't. And we can do that with our lives as well. And it's, why I use the, the animal analogy too, that we're here on this planet, we have all kinds of animals all trying to survive. And the way we do it is that constant recalibration, just as you were saying, you know, the tiny little increments. And let's say in uh, using, let's say a server as an example, right? Quasi quitting, would, uh, if I understand correctly, would that kind of look like, okay, they're not quitting their job immediately, but maybe now they're applying to other jobs while working their current job. And yeah. that might be that turning of the dial a little bit. So right. they're not quite, right. yeah. Yeah, okay. and or, even, or even going to a supervisor, you know, and be any kind of a job and saying, all right, can we can we craft this differently? Can I cobble this together slightly? I mean, I, obviously not all bosses are great. Not all bosses want to hear from their employees. I mean, I'm not naive, I understand that. But most of the bosses that I've had at any point, if you go to them and it involves you doing you know, the same amount of work, you're not trying to get out of anything. You're just saying, can we somehow cobble together a different configuration here that's going to work better for both of us? I mean, I think to think creatively about your, your, your job and to say, um, again, I'm not, I'm not quitting willy-nilly. I'm not quitting. It's, it's not this, this one huge momentous gesture in a fit mm -hmm. of pique. What I'm trying to do here is to, just to craft it, to think of it as almost like a, an artistic um, um, project here. I'm going to try to make something that's, that's very unique. It's going to be unique to me and very individual. And of course, I have examples in the book of, I think, some athletes and other people who have what I call quasi-quit, who have not, not changed everything, but changed how they do things. I give the example of Tiger Woods. He is not the golfer he was. He never will be. There, there are physical things and certainly emotional things and traumas that have occurred in his life, but he can still play. He doesn't, he didn't change from golf to something else. So it's a, it's a quasi quit. It's like saying, all right, I'm going to change this a little bit. Um, you know, in, in athletics, things are easy to see. And in, in, in most of our lives, because I mean, that's such a, such a huge blunt analogy. In most of our lives, it's different. We don't have, you know, quite that spectacle um, to use as our gauge. But I do think that just in our lives, because I've been, I was notorious for that kind of all or nothing thinking. I think it comes, mm -hmm. my family kind of has that element where it's like, it's either you're all in 
you know, you're going to go, you're, you're not just going to go to medical school. You're going to win the Nobel prize in medicine or it's mm. gonna be useless. How about just passing chemistry? You know, how about just, it's yeah. like, just passing organic <laughs> chemistry. Start with that, that all or nothing. I've never seen it to do anything positive in anyone's life. And I think that probably was another sort of motivating factor in wanting to write about quitting because what would often happen in, in members of my family, I've even seen it myself. When you do that all or nothing and something happens here with the all, then you quit everything instead of looking back and saying, all right, what can I take out of this experience that, no, I didn't win the Nobel Prize, but again, maybe I passed organic chemistry and maybe I discovered that, all right, organic chemistry is not to my liking, so I'm going to make another decision here. So you don't feel that everything is lost because something isn't working out in the moment, that quitting can be this creative act when you, you, kind, of, you kind of reconstruct your life over and over again. Yeah, I love that so much. And it makes me think in terms of just the way we see, so I want to go back to shame. In terms of the way we see our limitations, a lot of times it feels as though, I mean, obviously we're ashamed of them, but it also feels as though those limitations kind of define us so and solely, later and fully. And so a lot of times what happens in my therapy sessions where you have people who do want to be limitless, the belief is that they can't deal with the shame around those limitations. So it's like, I have to continuously pursue a goal because I can't deal with failure, right? Because what does that say about me? Does that mean that I am a failure? Does that mean that people will all of a sudden stop loving me? You know, stop caring about me and thinking about me, et cetera. So the thinking around that, and this is what I love about your reframing, is that the thinking around that is that, yes, it's a limit, but it's not just that. So black and white thinking will say, okay, this is a limitation and, you know, kind of story's over, right? You're saying, no, 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 it's a limitation. And the point of acknowledging a limitation, especially if now we're looking at the context of animals in the wild, is for you to be able to pivot and look at things that are, let's say, potentially uh, skill sets or, uh, you know, potential avenues of success. So if we're looking at success in this very kind of narrowly defined category, what happens oftentimes is again, that this all or nothing thinking people feel like, oh, well, if I can't do this, then I'm never going to be successful. Yeah. And I love that you do the opposite. You're saying, no, what you see with animals in the wild, it's like, yes, they're not successful at this thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean they won't be successful. And you know, when I think about this, this oftentimes, and I've mentioned this in my therapy sessions all the time, I think of the great Gatsby, man. I think of this person who comes from literally nothing and he thinks, okay, the only way for me to feel good about myself and for me to silence that shame once and for all is for me to be like a kind of multi-billionaire, you know, billionaire, whatever, for me to be at the kind of upper crust, right? At the sort of elite, at the creme de la creme of social status. And the thinking there is, I think a lot of times my patients go through, and just people in general go through this, where I think the thinking is, how do I silence the doubter once and for all? And the best way for me to do that is, you know, I they don't think about it this way, but it really is to pretend that you don't have any limits. So oftentimes when you're seeing the shame, it's like a smack in the face and it's reminding you of all of those things that you, a, think, you know, number one, think that you can't be, but number two is all of those things that you think of in terms of your interpretations of what you can be, meaning that, okay, this says that I'll never be able to be loved. And this says that I'll always feel ashamed of myself, et cetera. So again, it's like this sort of topsy-turvy world where you're kind of like, uh, you're putting all of your efforts into something and you're constantly chiseling away, chiseling away, chiseling away. And then you kind of fall back down. It's sort of like a combination of mania and then this cascading fall of depression. Boy, that's, that's really, really wise. I think that's, that's exactly right. And it's interesting that you see that, you know, when, in some of your, um, patients and your clients, because I think, and it was really resonating with me, what you were saying. Um, it's like, I don't know if you fellows have ever been on a diet. I think men are never on diets, right? Only women. This one is. This one is. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you have a day and you're like, oh, so you eat a couple of cookies and then, oh, okay, now I've broken my diet. By God, I'm going to go out and eat an entire cheesecake. I mean, that's sort of the equivalent. It's like, I failed. I'm a quitter. I'm a loser. I'm a bum. Therefore, what the hell? And then, and right. then off you go. Instead of just like, yeah, okay, had a couple of cookies. Yeah, it, it's just there are there are sort of because sometimes I worry about this sounding a little too highfalutin, a little too much about you know life changing. And I talk about the spirit and the soul. All of that is embedded in this as well. But there's also just the kind of day to day strategy of right. So if you don't get it right in this small way, you're not a loser. You're not a bum. There's no shame. You're just saying, yeah, okay. So I, so I had a couple of cookies start again tomorrow, you know, it's just, it's, um, and as I said, I think a lot of this does come, come out of just my own sort of experience of having maybe not lived up to some potential that I felt that I had. I don't know about you all are probably like me that you, you got the things on the report card. The most devastating words were, um, does not live up to potential, does not live yeah. up to his or her potential. Worst thing you could say, because that means you're not trying hard enough. Right. And it's that, you know, quits too soon and gives up too soon and all that. And um, I, I think it would be what would be wonderful if we could just sort of eliminate that idea and just sort of fumigate the culture um, of that of that particular idea, because it is particularly as you get older and as you become an adult, 
and uh, get out of high school and college, it does become so onerous and it, 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 it's a burden. It's a burden you carry around and you think, I bet the world could see. I bet I have, I have a loser secretly tattooed on my forehead and, and, right. and those words are, or that those letters will emerge at the most inopportune time, like when I'm applying for a job. And I, I just see it around us all the time and I see the way our culture is structured. If somebody, if somebody uh, leaves a, a political contest, for instance, I, I really don't like, I mean, I was a journalist for many years and I really don't like the way they instantly say so-and-so gave up his or her campaign or God forbid someone, someone dies of cancer and we talk about them losing their battle with cancer. And right. it just, the, the whole way we craft the idea of something that works out in a, in a way other than the way you planned is that always being um, evidence of lack of effort, lack of ability, and all these other kind of negative um, attributes that we stack on top of it. And it just isn't right. It isn't right from a, from a nature standpoint, from a neuroscience standpoint, and not even from a cultural standpoint. And it's also, by the way, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So it's either you pursue something that's not going to get you anywhere and you're like, great, I feel ashamed of myself <laughs> for being a loser or, you know, for like failing. Or if it's on the other end, it's pretty much, oh, I now I'm ashamed of myself for giving up. So it, there's no kind of winning. So, uh, Julia, then my question here is when did quitting and when did sort of perseverance and grit take on a moral dimension? So this is a conversation I often have with people because it doesn't make any sense to me, you know? So people will say something to me like, well, you know, I feel like I'm a bad person for giving up. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, hold on, hold on. I'm like, how? How is it that you're a good person if you continuously work hard and let's say, you know, make money or whatever becomes successful? And how does it make you a bad person if you don't do that? I understand how it could be kind of maybe a form of self-harm, meaning that let's say, I don't know, you're not living up to your potential, therefore you feel like shit about yourself. Okay, I totally understand it. But how is this like a moral issue? Where does like morality and ethics play into this? So yeah, how did that happen? How do we start thinking about this ethically? You know, that is a great way of putting it, a, a moral issue, because I think I have a point in the book when I talk about it being a moral panic that we get this idea, as you say, and it's interesting that you actually hear that from people who will say that this must mean I'm a bad person because I because I quit. It's used to, for women a lot, too. I think women hear that when they're leaving relationships that aren't working out for them. How could you? How could you do this? How could you? You're giving up. You're, again, I peg it to that 19th century time because you really don't see it in a lot of literature and a lot of writing prior to that in the 19th century. Uh, the, the ball really got rolling with this idea of it being a moral thing. The idea of, um, we talk about the Protestant work ethic, but of yeah. course it's more than just in Protestantism, more difficult to yeah, say. Protestantism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> that it, it really is in, is in a lot of religions and a lot of, you know, it goes kind of crosses the board there that it's a way of kind of keeping people in line, as I mentioned. And I think it, it, it accounts for why we have been so willing, I think, uh, unfortunately willing to put up with the income inequality that continues to this day, in fact, has even gotten more pronounced and is almost to a degree now that's really uh, unconscionable, which is this, this vast gap between the rich and the poor that we allow to continue. Um, racial inequality we see around us all the time. And we seem to be kind of willing to put up with a certain amount of that. And I think, again, that comes from this idea that there is, that if we can, if we can put a moral judgment upon someone who hasn't achieved life's great things, all the, all the riches that we think we, we all should want, a big house, big car, all those things. If we can put a moral dimension on that, then our consciences are relieved. Then we don't have to worry about it too much. It's like, well, yeah, but uh, they brought it on themselves. That line that you hear very often about unfortunate people, not taking into account at all the fact that many people are born into intergenerational poverty. I mean, I come from West Virginia. And wow. this, this is what I would see. It's very, very difficult for people to break out of intergenerational poverty, where it's just kind of ingrained into the into the cycle and into the into the lifestyle. Uh, people are born with physical and intellectual and emotional disabilities. People are born black or brown in a predominantly white culture. People are born with all kinds of burdens that they overcome or don't overcome to whatever degree is possible for them. But we have to shove all that aside and not think about that because it's so much easier to look at the world and say, rich people worked hard. You know, Bill Gates must have worked harder than everybody. Bezos worked hard. Elon Musk, sure. And then you have the people at the bottom who are struggling to make their rent payment. And we look at them and say, ah, well, they, they gave up. They didn't, you know, they're not, they're not conscientious. They don't, they don't get to work on time and they don't, well, they really have no idea. So my point would be, I think that moral dimension grew and now kind of permeates the culture because it very much serves the interest of the people at the top of the economic scale. This is my social justice warrior part of me. Mm -hmm. that is, uh, but I, I really do believe that when you, when you look at the way it's written about, look at the way it's talked about, 
it's this idea that somehow you have to keep people in line because the, the people at the lower end of the economic spectrum are just looking for an excuse to be lazy and to sit around and to not try. Somehow being wealthy seems to confer some kind of a, a, you know, a moral stature upon you, a moral grandeur. And of course, we know that's rubbish. I mean, there are, there are good and bad people at either end. And whether or not one has uh, a lot of money in your, in your bank account has nothing to do with what kind of person you are. But we have increasingly allowed income inequality to grow. We've allowed racial inequality to kind of fester and, and yeah. get worse and worse, I would argue. And the way that we do that, a handmaiden to that, is this notion of hard work as virtuous and giving up as somehow slovenly. Yeah. So, yeah, no, and these are clearly uh, systemic issues, right? Yeah. It, it's very, yeah. see, even if we could, um, which we can't, but at least not yet, um, you know, let's say we could give equality of opportunity, right? This still wouldn't mean that where people, there's still an inequity in where people start out, right? Yeah. Like you mentioned West Virginia, like somebody, uh, you know, I guess if I did this visually, somebody could start here, but already have been born here. And, you know, it's easier for them to attain something in life, you know, depending where they're born, what zip code they live in, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um. I think there is some like w one thing that I, if I had to find like a kernel of truth in that um, in that idea of, you know, uh, working hard, uh, let's say, or at least being able to uplift yourself is it's and by the way, I'm not with the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. You can Definitely. agree with it a little bit. No, no, no but okay. here's a, here's an as aspect of it that I find interesting, which is when they when with certain let's say self-help literature or something set tells you, okay, many of the things that are going on in your life, you know, that you, you could take ownership of it, right. That you could be responsible yeah. for it. Right mm -hmm. now on one level, that's impossible, right? Like again, a disease, not based on anything that you're uh, eating could affect you. You could, uh, it could affect somebody that you love. A hurricane could come a storm, you know, all these environmental factors, they have no control over. Right. But by being able to at least own some of the things that, um, you know, you have a relationship with in life, one thing I like about that idea is it kind of puts you in this sort of, uh, it, let's say if there's a cause and effect relationship, you know, you're more like, instead of at the effect of things like, oh, I'm a, a victim, you know, I can't do anything. You're kind of, it kind of puts you in this mindset of being at the, at the cause in a way. Yeah. You're a contributor. Like you're as if you're able to, yeah, contribute yeah, you're something to the yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. If, if I had to find something what? from like that um, perspective that sa at least sounds true, sounds yeah. rational. Yeah. Uh, and sorry, go ahead. No, no, because yeah. I was gonna, so I think we would all agree with that. So the thing is, I, I just to be clear, I don't think you know what Julia was saying was black. And I'm just saying for, for yeah for the audience. Yeah, no. yeah, so it's not it's not black and white, right? So my thinking is, uh, yeah. So in terms of being contributors, that's a great thing. I think the problem is when we start going into. So I really want to define this for our audience, and this is just my definition. People don't have to agree with it. So I think there's such a distinction between responsibility and blame, right? So when we think right. of responsibility, yeah, we think yeah. how have you contributed to this particular situation, right? So responsibility mm -hmm. entails multiple determinants. So you have multiple factors that contribute to an effect, right? Blame says you deserve this outcome, right? right. So like, let's say, uh, you know, let's say I am struggling with alcoholism, right? So what somebody would say was like, you know, hey, Leon, man, like you've been drinking a lot. Uh, you know, you've made people really uncomfortable. And this is by the way happened. Uh, you've made people really uncomfortable. You know, you said really awful stuff. And I would say, oh, okay. So the reason why they don't want to talk to me is because I'm responsible for that to whatever extent, right? So meaning that I said these things and this is the effect, right? What I'm not saying is is that, oh, well, now you deserve to be loveless and friendless, right? That's saying, well, you deserve some sort of punishment for this. And I think that's where we're kind of getting, yeah. Right, like at, at least the, that uh, kind of mindset, like the whole uh, pull, yourself by, by, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, the way that that's contributed to just simply explaining away yep. that disparity between the rich and the poor, yes. that that is definitely a crime. That is... No, that is messed up. Sorry, Down goes Mike. Mike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but no, yeah. I see what you're saying. I, I really like that distinction there between responsibility and blame, because you can say to somebody, you can bear responsibility, but the blame aspect, that's where that moral dimension comes in and where we, right. we become scolds yeah. and, uh, you know, the, the kind of nanny state idea when you're saying to people like, yes, kind of wagging a finger in their face. But certainly there are aspects of our lives that we control. Absolutely. And I mean, we wouldn't want any other way. I mean, we are not just automatons, you know, working without any without any volition. We do have volition. 
we do have, have independent will, but that independent will operates within this larger system of things just happening, of good things, bad things. I mean, we all know, in addition to bad things happen, we also know outcomes that we just got lucky. We also know that luck yeah. can work both ways. There are times when it's like, darn, I just got lucky that I, I applied in the right year and they were looking for this particular set of circ- a, a set of attributes, you know, in a, applying to a college or, or a grad school program. So it can work both ways. So I, I, I do like that distinction very much between the responsibility and blame, because it, again, it tends to take out that moral dimension and that scolding right. dimension that is just so negative. I mean, I know, I know people that I've spoken with and I said, they carry that stigma around and carrying a stigma around does nothing. It does nothing except tire you and it doesn't lead anywhere. And it ends up just being the self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, I'm a failure, I'm a loser. And that's so often uh, just it's, it's sort of stamped on certain people. And it's it's very hard to break out of that. Yeah. Yeah. When some people carry on that, um, and this is completely rational, but they carry on this sort of delusion of if I tough it out, you know, maybe I'll, I'll make it through or, uh, you know, I, I got to just take this step by step every day. And there's an element of truth to that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the thing is, if we take this idea of uh, let's say opportunity cost and 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 combine that with uh, strategic or actually that's included in strategic quitting, right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is like okay, what else can I do with my time? Is this the the best way I could be spending my time? Let's say at this job, and uh, yes, I, I'm contributing. Yes, uh, uh, maybe I'm making a difference in people's lives and all that. But is this the best thing I could be doing for myself? Is there something else I could be doing that's more beneficial? That's a um, Yes. And I'm so glad you brought up opportunity cost as well, because that so figures into this, you know, I have a chapter in business and like, well, how does this work in business? Well, you know, you look at the Elizabeth Holmeses and and, uh, the Adam Newmans and these people whose businesses imploded. And I think part of the reason was these aren't, weren't dumb people, but these are people who had gone so far along in it that they were unable to quit. Had they been able to quit strategically, or I, I sometimes call it precision quitting, if you can figure out when and where to quit, that's the real that's the real creative challenge is when and where to quit, not whether to, but it's all right, I put this into it. This doesn't work. I say like when Elizabeth Holmes, she knew the machine didn't work. Several years in, she knew it didn't work. Why didn't she stop? Opportunity cost, that fallacy, that opportunity cost fallacy. I've already put so much into it, so I can't stop now. It, it, it's with, uh, I think, um, school programs, uh, relationships, marriages. People say, well, I've already got so many years in. And then you end up just in this kind of doom loop of, I, I can't get out of it now because I'll be a quitter. So I think your your um, uh, mentioning opportunity cost is really is really spot on. Wait, can I can I just really quickly add? And you know what that really reminds me of? So going back just really quickly to the moral dimension of this. So you know, oftentimes when people read the Great Gatsby, especially if you're a conservative, you're like, yeah, Jay Gatsby is a hero. You know, he, he kind of like here here like these evil millionaires or whatever, and he's just like you know this like great guy. You know, he's like trying really hard. He's working his ass off. You know, he's like maneuvering in different ways or whatever. The thing that people don't get, in my interpretation, at least in my interpretation, I don't want to say this is the interpretation. I think that was a criticism of hyper individualism, rugged individualism and capitalism, because essentially what this person did was he kind of tuned everything out by being so myopic. He literally ended up killing somebody and didn't even stop to care for her. He was like, okay, I don't care. I have to make sure whatever I'm doing works out. So what you're seeing on the one hand is that like, yes, these like rich people are pretty evil. But on the other hand, he's no better than them. Right, right. And it's that self-made man idea, the idea that you can undergo a rigorous course of study, you know, when they come across James Gatz's list of of all the ways that he got to where he was, his father talks about seeing his daily routine. That's sort of the classic self-help mantra idea that I will follow this prescription. I will get to where I want to go and just just put on the put on the blinders and get to where you want to go. And as you say, the tragedy ensues from that. Instead of that being something that we're that that, that Fitzgerald was saying we we should uh, emulate and, and what we should aspire toward, it's really saying, no, 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 it's a tragedy. And that's why. Yes. Hello, that was sorry, Alan. You wanted to say something? No, no. Yeah, it's just related to the sunken cost sure, sure. Uh, fallacy, yeah. right? It's it's interesting that when you have invested so much into something, the the shame or that that you know that uh, from that moral perspective that sort of comes in, it's it's like this, and you described it as well. It's like a weight, right? An unnecessary weight that you're kind of carrying. Like, uh, I mean, for example, um, I I'll. I'll I'll be very general about this. I have a friend. Uh, so th- at the job that he's working, he's invested so much time, uh, years, right? And he's he's making a reasonable amount at that job, but he knows that he's able to do so much more, 
right? And it, he realizes that it's not going to be by being at the same place that he's sticking to right now. But he has this idea of, oh, I'm very loyal to the people I work with. I have a community here, which, by the way, is a beautiful thing. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. But uh, because of all this investment, he feels like he'd be letting people down if he left and went somewhere else. There's also this like uh, unfamiliarity with something brand new and all these sort of elements at play, right? But ultimately, and it would be in his best interest to actually move on to that new place and maybe explore, right? I, I believe there was a part in your book where uh, I think it was uh, people use LinkedIn polling to see what advice they would give mm -hmm. their 20-year-old uh, selves or 21-year-old selves. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, it was to, you know, explore, try different things. Quit more you know, often. Quit more and often. quit more often. Yes. I, to, to a person almost. I can give a couple of, of, of examples, but mainly everybody said they regret more of the things that they didn't quit but should have right. than the things that they did. But it's hard. You know, when you were when you were talking, I was thinking that's a point I should have made earlier. It's also really, really hard. I, I, it, the cultural baggage makes it difficult for us to quit things that we should when we know we should. But there's also just, we're, I think we're, we're, we're kind of, um, we're primed for all kinds of ways to keep going along the path we're on. It's very, very difficult. I'm always impressed when I see that someone has quit one path for another, um, whether it works out or not, just even just to get the, the oomph to go ahead and do it. It's mm -hmm. very, very difficult. And I, and I always try to make that point because in some ways you worry that I'm making it sound like, oh yes, just breeze, go from job to job, who cares? You know, have a, have a letter of resignation ready in your file at all times. You know, mm -hmm. you have it yet yeah, yeah, and you just fill in the particulars, you know, once a year, um, not at all. It's very, very difficult. And I am always um, very admiring of people who do find the courage and it's a kind of a moral courage and a spiritual courage, but it's also a belief in abundance. The, the way I get sort of past that thicket, that thicket of the, of the fear of what's going to happen to me, will this work out? What if it doesn't? Is that belief in abundance and hope? And ultimately that's what I hope people take away from the book is that it is about hope. I intended to be very positive is to say, there is something on the other side of these dilemmas we all want to use our gifts and talents along lines of excellence. That was the Greek definition of happiness. And that's truly what everybody wants to do, be it, I mentioned the, the you know, someone who's a server at a cafe or a Nobel Prize winning physicist. We all want to do the best we can with our gifts and talents, which are unique to us, both in their capacity and in their, in their diversity. We all want to do the best we can. And the only way to do that is to have that belief in abundance. And I speak as somebody who hasn't always had that. I mean, that's been a real struggle for me to not be cynical. I come from a cynical people. I always say mm -hmm. kind of, we're kind of dark, cynical people. Um, and my father was a math professor and everything sort of came down to numbers and right angles. And, um, and the world isn't right angles. The world is curves. The world is, is this beautiful kind of messy diversity, but you have to believe at some point that there is hope. You will find that situation that's right for you. You will find that person if that's what you're seeking. You will find that belief system that works for you. It does await you, but you can only get there when you have that courage to quit and to know mm. when and how to do it and to, and to take that leap. And it is enormously difficult. I just wanted to, to put in a plug for the difficulty of it because I, I know as well as anyone how hard that is to quit the known and the familiar for the, for the unknown. And I have to be nosy and ask, so what helped you since you were so cynical? Ah, let's mm -hmm. see. I think the cynicism wasn't working. Do you remember that line in Fight Club when he's describing to the to the other guy saying like, I'm this way. And then the, uh, the care, I don't want to, no spo uh, spoiler alert. No, you can spoil it. It's a movie's a million years old. I don't even oh, remember. Okay. It. Yeah, I, I saw it like that. 10 years ago. Well, some people still get mad when you give a spoiler alert with Psycho, you know, or if you don't, oh, give, God. if you say, no, it's true. People get, yeah. they, get they get weirder about spoilers and more possessive <laughs> than anything else. It's true. It's true. When he says, when Tyler Burden says, yeah, and how's that working out for you? Mm. That's kind of where you get, if something, if it's a belief system, that's not working out, that's the question to ask yourself. How's that working out for you? Well, the very fact that you're asking the question means that it's not, or you wouldn't mm. be asking. So for me, it was a matter of just a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people, kind of, um, you know, I have friends with very different views about what, what makes a successful life, what makes a happy life. And I love to cull the different views of various people. You know, no one book or one belief system or one philosophy is ever enough, but we, we take the bits and pieces from everything and kind of put it together in this glorious mosaic that is our individual life. So I know that sounds kind of, starry and ethereal, but truly it wasn't a moment like a, a great epiphany. It was a, a series of small epiphanies 
akin to that rheostat dial changing. It's like, click, 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 like that's not working. That's not working. That's not working. What, there used to be an old cartoon and, and it had a newspaper headline and it said, new hope for cynics, shortened hmm. lives. <laughs> made me laugh. And I thought, well, that's really true though. I mean, if, if, if your cynicism becomes a prevailing philosophy in your life, then what is life? Then life is a, it's a misery and a torment. So the only way to live is to, is to believe in abundance and believe in, in hope and believe that there is a place we can get to where there is um, not just serenity, not just happiness, which I think of as, as kind of static, but something beyond that, this, that kind of propulsive magic, as I said, about always striving. And striving is great and striving is wonderful. And, and staying on a course, if it's working for you, is great. But right. for a great many people, it isn't. And so it is time for a change. How do you how do you get there? How do you get the courage to do that and to have that imagination to get there? Which is what I hope the book at least suggests to people that there are those possibilities. Right. So what I hear you kind of saying is that it's an ingrained part of us that essentially at some point, most of us, if not all of us, we get to the point where we ask, okay, how is this working for you? Yeah. So can we, yeah, can we now kind of, and this is a great segue, can we now start talking about zebrafish, right? And then what do we find here yeah, from the neuroscience of zebrafish and how all of this ties in? That's, that's what they use. These scientists use. I love these conversations with neuroscientists. You know, I began this from the cultural standpoint because that was always my job writing these cultural essays about what it all means. And in talking with these neuroscientists, though, what I found to be fascinating, I thought there has to be studies on quitting. There must be. And indeed, come to find out that quitting and how the brain does it, how it accomplishes it, what chemical and electrical triggers actually occur in the brain to make quitting possible and desirable, ends up being increasingly a focus of neuroscience. For one thing, a lot of our addiction studies with neuroscience are about quitting. We want people who who is one, one uh, neuroscientist at the University of Washington explained to me, he said, on the one hand, you've got a, a drug addict or an alcoholic who is too motivated. You know, they, 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 they keep going when they shouldn't. And then on the other hand, you have perhaps a, a clinically depressed person who doesn't, is not motivated at all. So it's the opposite. All that is happening in the brain inside those 86 billion neurons. How does the brain make that decision? And neurofish, uh, uh, zebrafish rather, neurofish, Actually, I like that. That sounds like a good sign. It's a good, yeah, it's a good, yeah. We just coined the term here. I, I like it. that. Neurofish. neurofish. Yeah. In any case, so zebrafish are these tiny little minnows from Southeast Asia that are used in a great many experiments. And they are because they're small, easily procurable. And in the larva stage, they're translucent. So when the neuroscientists go in there and do their, do their, their magical little uh, manipulating of the genes, they can actually see the brains light up when things happen. So they would use the, the zebrafish to uh, these experiments and discovering where in the brain does quitting happen? And if it happens in a zebrafish brain, you know, we'll be able to trace it in a human brain. Um, they would make the zebrafish grow despondent and want to quit. They would basically use, um, uh, use virtual reality and be, be projecting long waves on the side of the fish tank. And the, so the harder the fish was swimming, the, the, the less he would seem to be getting where he wanted to go. So he would become like, oh, I'm just going to give up. So he would give up. So they would be able to measure and look and see where in the brain that was happening. What, what were the, what neurons were flashing? And it turns out that a lot of quitting happens in things called glial cells, which are sort of helper cells. They're not specifically neurons, but they are brain cells that also occur inside our brains. And so increasingly, this is a focus of neuroscience. How does the brain choose one path over another? What makes us stop and go another way? I mean, we think of that as, as, as almost a, as exclusively a psychiatric decision. You know, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to do this. Turns out there's this whole physiological dimension. So which happens first, the psychiatric or the physiological, uh, chicken or the egg? This is still, this is the focus right now. And I, I find it fascinating that quitting is itself the site of so many great neuroscience experiments that we're, we're just at the very cusp of this, but we will get there because we have these, these great, great minds and, and work upon this now. Um, and that was kind of a, a, a bonus to me to discover that not only was I interested in quitting from its um, cultural representation, you know, you have a Captain Ahab who can't quit. He won't quit going after that white whale. Yeah. Um, a lot of our tragic heroes are people who can't quit. Hamlet cannot stop. He has to avenge his father. He can't stop, even though it would be much in his best interest to stop. How does this happen? So in figuring out where and how it happens physiologically, then we can you know, move on to the psychiatric aspects of it. But it's all of a piece, of course, it's all interwoven. And that to me is the fascinating challenge of what we think of as quitting and giving up.
Right. And just to kind of pinpoint this really quickly. So the cells were actually altered in these fish. That's what was so cool about that chapter. So fundamentally, the fish at some points would give up, but they would give up because they had a, what would you call it? It was, um, I don't know, I guess what's the term? There was a manipulation of them, right? And then so what you would see is that these fish would go from either giving up too quickly or they wouldn't give up at all. So we tend, this is like, this kind of goes against the free will argument, right? So on the one hand, we think, well, yeah, if you just want to do it, you can do it. And I get it, you know, fish aren't humans, obviously, I understand that. But what we're actually seeing is that if you do kind of alter the kind of chemical makeup of these fish, what happens is they do change. And again, it's not just, oh, you know, the environment changes where, you know, kind of the waves are coming at them quicker as they're going forward and they're saying, oh, this is not going anywhere. It's even deeper than that. If you actually alter that sort of that mental makeup of them, then they're different, man. And that's so amazing to me. Well, and you see how that would be, how that would have immediate utility when you're talking about um, dealing with people and uh, addiction issues. Can right. we create pharmaceuticals that would mimic some of those um, chemical triggers in the brain? So if you have someone that is hopelessly addicted, whose whose life has just become a misery, what can we do about that? And this would be this is a this is a new frontier where we might be able to do. And of course, pharmaceuticals aren't the answer to everything, but right. there might be some ways we can alleviate suffering. And the same with a depressed person. Can we make a depressed person come up with some kind of a pharmaceutical? Uh, that would be able to to motivate someone that at least get them going in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these are these are vast, vast mysteries, and there are many, many steps that are that between here and where we would like to go. But we are at least beginning it, and it's really quite hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, thinking of some of the examples that you used, I really love those two. So Simone Biles obviously comes to mind. She's the more popular, the most popular one probably now, at least, you know, Scottie Pippen was in the nineties, but yeah. the Simone Biles one is really great because I mean, fundamentally this person is quitting for health reasons, you know, and then you have kind of a culture that's split on that. You have, you know, one side of the culture that says, well, I mean, she's obviously doing the right thing. She needs to take care of herself. And then the other part of the culture that says, well, she let her, she's let her team down and she's fundamentally disappointed everybody. And it seems like this is kind of the contrast that we often have internally, like, you know, in terms of quitting, how, so this is the kind of segue of what I want to get into, right? So let's say I'm stuck in this situation where, you know, my mind, let's say I am in the Simone Biles type situation where I'm thinking, okay, I don't want to let people down. But then on the other hand, I don't really feel like I can keep going. And if anything, maybe I'll even let people down even further or even more so if I keep going. So how do we begin to kind of navigate that? On the one hand, we are part of a team in some sense, right? We are part of a species. We have communities that we're in, you know, et cetera, yeah. right? Yeah. And so how do we now navigate that responsibility? Because I, I know you talk about this and this is why I'm getting into this. We do have a responsibility responsibility to others, right? So how do we navigate between the responsibility with ourselves or for ourselves, toward ourselves, and then the responsibility toward others, right? Because this is like a dichotomy, man, and a juxtaposition that we're often, it's its fraught, man. It's fraught with so many different symptoms and experiences and negative emotions that for us, a lot of times we just go from one extreme to the other. No, you're exactly right. In fact, the one example I always remember is being a, a football fan, Thurman Thomas. You remember mm. the Bills in the Super Bowl when he fumbled it and so he sat on the ground and sulked basically you yeah. could argue that he lost the, the whole game for them he couldn't get it so he just quit and it was this horrible spectacle i remember sitting there and going get back in the game man come on you know we all we hate that idea of the quitting and the right. giving up however like with the simone biles example she did what was right for her she knew what was at stake and it was uh, not only her mental health but her physical health and as you say it was huge debate on, on in, in twitter i mean people were calling her you know unpatriotic and all this and we right. see that we see that all the time, that dilemma of which is better. And it is important to be part of a team. One thing I would say what, in terms of what the book might be able to do, because I'm certainly no expert in human behavior, but I will say this, what I hope to do with the book, with all the examples that I had in there of people talking about moments in their lives when they did um, either quit and go in a new direction or not quit and stay the course. There's something about hearing other people's experiences. I know for me, I find it very, very helpful, um, mm -hmm. entertaining. And, but, but really mind expanding to hear how other people have handled these dilemmas. It's why we read literature, I believe, is right. to see other experiences. We can't live hundreds of different lives, but we can read hundreds of books. And in the course of that, see how other people negotiate life and go through this. So that's, that's one thing I would say is that when reading about other people's experiences and how they dealt with moments like that, we're not going to emulate it completely in every particular, of course not, sure. but it does expand our notion of possibilities and of the potential. It's like, I'm, I'm dealing with this moment. Do I stick with the team or not? I, I know I mentioned sports a lot, but I have that one chapter on how parents deal with kids who come and they want to quit a sports team. A friend mm -hmm. of mine's uh, son was playing high school football and came to her one day and just said, I, I want to quit. And she was like, are you kidding? You know, they go, they went to all the games, the whole family did, they, they spent a lot of money and all these extracurriculars. And she was just horrified. And, and, and she was afraid he just was like too lazy too. Come to find out that wasn't it at all. In the course of their conversations, prompted by him saying he wanted to quit, and he did quit, was mm -hmm. the fact that he's a big kid. He was on the offensive line. 
he didn't like hurting people. He had, he'd had to knock some kids down and he said, I just don't, he switched to basketball and he had a wonderful, in fact, he just graduated from high school, uh, was a wonderful high school basketball player. Cause again, he's a big kid and he loved basketball because it was about the fluidity and it was about the athleticism. And it wasn't so much about knocking somebody down. Mm-hmm. So my point being, he had to decide he didn't want to let his teammates down. He loved being on the team. He even loved the coach. What he mm-hmm. didn't love was what he had to do in this position he was playing. So they were able to find this compromise and do it because certainly nobody likes letting people down. Yeah. I mean, you and being part of a team is probably one of those glorious emotions you ever have. You know, I can remember as, as a kid, but one of the best possible moments, I was on a soccer team once and uh, I think it was the, the, they had a player coach came and, you know, slapped me on the rear and said, good play, Keller. I have never at that moment. That's it. That's the pinnacle. It's never gotten better than that. Good play, Keller. We all remember that you know, you've helped the team. You've done this. And I, I carry that with me. The memory of that is this golden memory. So to think of not having had that memory, had I, had I quit the team, I wouldn't have had that memory. So being on a team is a wonderful thing. But again, when you find yourself feeling it's not the right thing, like a Simone Biles did, like a Scotty Pippen did, like a Thurman Thomas did, in her case, seemed like a, a good decision. We can understand it. in their cases, maybe, maybe it was something else there. Um, maybe they were, maybe they were being a little bit selfish, really only, only they can say they and 10,000 sports writers, but Mm -hmm. the point I would make is that it is this individual decision and in no other arena of life is our, our sort of view of ourselves and where we fit into the culture and in our families and whether we're using our gifts and talents as we should in no other arena is that so prominent and so visible as in the decision to quit or not to quit. Yeah. What's, and for, in this case, football comes to mind because it's such a great example. So and what I hear, and I'm going to tie this back into that. Uh, what I hear you saying is that a utilitarian principle seems to work here where we're asking ourselves, what's the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. Yeah, and yeah. so why I bring up football. So the story uh, American underdog has been kind of popularized now with the Kurt Warner story. And they had a yeah. movie about it a couple of, I think it was last year now. So, and with Kurt Warner, what was so great about him is he always asked like, okay, what's good for my team. Right. So Kurt Warner was, I, I'm not going to get into the details. I'm sure most people don't really care as a football fan. You would. Uh, so Kurt Warner was uh, was benched a while ago for this guy named Mark Bulger. And so, you know, at that point, he was like at the height of his career. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame quarterback. And so the question was, okay, what do I do now? Like, how do I kind of use this? Right. And so for Kurt Warner, what's so great. And so thinking about this ahead, this all really worked out for him, but who could have known this at that time? So for him, he asked, okay, wh- how can I best serve my team? So Kurt Warner was not just a backup quarterback. So not only did he hold the clipboard, he actually was a tutor to Mark Bulger. And so what happened was that Mark Bulger was kind of coming up. He wasn't doing really well sort of was, sort of wasn't, and Kurt Warner was helping him along. So here he decided, okay, I'm going to do what's best for my team. So on the one hand, I could just kind of fully quit. And so even though, you know, I kind of got fired, right? Uh, I can fully quit and say, forget it. I'm throwing my hands up. I don't want to do anything. Or I can ask myself, okay, if I'm going to kind of quit in this way, meaning, and, and again, you can ask, you can say that he was demoted, but he also kind of did quit too. Um, so he was not going to be a starting quarterback anymore. And he's saying, okay, how do I now pivot? And how do I become the best person that I can for this particular team, right? And I think tying this into Simone Biles, I think that's probably what she was doing. I don't think it's as simple as, well, she's either selfish or she's not selfish. That goes into black and white thinking, like we were talking about earlier. I think the thinking is, how can I best serve my team? So if it's me stepping away from this and me not being at the fore of all of this, that's probably the best thing that I could do for my team. Yeah. And that's what I, yeah. And that's what I think Kurt Warner did. You know, when he was like, okay, you know, what, what's like the best thing that I could do? Should I continue to fight for my job? That's what I mean by when I said he kind of quit. So I, I know people be like, oh, why are you saying Kurt Warner quit? So I understand he was demoted, but the thing is he could have resisted. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to come out there every single day and I'm going to win my job back. He didn't do that, man. He was just like, Hey, you know, it's maybe it's not my time anymore. I'm going to help Mark. I think like he's the next great thing. Yeah. And uh, that for him was, you know, a version of perfect analogy. I was going to say, that's exactly what I was getting at too, with the Tiger Woods analogy. There's no way that Tiger Woods, when he came back in the 2022 um, uh, masters, there's no way he was going to win. He wasn't going to win. He had to change his definition of what winning meant to him. What's the best he could do. In fact, he was asked at the end when he finished, I think 42nd, it, mm-hmm. was it, was just you fit, c- coming out here and competing like you did and just finishing. Was that a victory? And he said, yes, for a tiger woods to answer that question with yes, because we all know the drive the man has, we know that drive to excel and the drive to be the best. I mean, one of the fiercest competitors, the greatest athletes in history to say, yes, and that's exactly, I think your, your, your um, Kurt Warner point is great. And it, you know, it's a great story too, because earlier you could argue it was the not quitting when he was bagging groceries, you know, not, not getting a job in the NFL. He could have, he could have quit at that point. He didn't. 
So to say precision quitting doesn't mean that quitting is always the best thing. It's that every situation is different. And at that point, he decided, no, I do want to stick with this now. But later in his career, yes, he's older. He's not as effective. The team has made another decision, gone to a different style offense. This guy's going to be better at it. So it's that quasi quitting. He quit that, that, that need to be number one and to be the starter, but he didn't quit football itself because he had this vast trove of knowledge about it. So actually the Kurt Warner analogy is really, really good. Yeah. And you know what I love too? So I had a conversation with a patient the other day. And so we were talking about the distinction between players and coaches. And so this person is like really against quitting, like hates quitting. She's like, what? Well, I'm not a quitter. Right. So, and she, and I gave her the analogy, like the football analogy, whatever sports analogy of coaches and players. And she says to me, yeah, but that actually proves my point. Right. So people who can't play coach. Right. And I'm like, yes, but here's the point that you're missing. Right. I'm like, first of all, coaches have more longevity. Number one. Uh, number two is oftentimes the best players can't become great coaches because they're so self-absorbed. So when the person early, on fails at football, right? Playing what happens is they kind of pivot into coaching. And now they're thinking is how do I get these guys or women, obviously too, how do I get them to become the best players that they can be? So unfortunately, if you had this really great career, it actually might be much harder for you to give it up and then become a great coach. Oh, and oftentimes, yeah. 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 And, I, and Tom Brady is a great example. Everybody always says Brady would be a horrendous coach because he can't give up being number one, but yeah, but then you have this pivot of like, Oh shit, maybe I don't have to be a great player. Maybe I could be a great coach. Oh, and I think that's absolutely right. As great a player as he is, I don't think he'd be a good coach at all. And I think he knows that. That's why he hasn't gone down that route. The other yeah. thing is because his own personal work ethic is a very, people think, act like a work ethic, again, it's either all or nothing, but it's a kind of work ethic he has, you know, in reading, in reading about how he prepares, because I think he's a wonderful case study, not the most physically gifted person in the world, far from it. But how did he make himself into a goat? How did he do that? And that's when you look at that, it's, it, makes, it makes a great case about it being so individual. There's an absolutely individual path. It's not a one size fits all. And the same is true of quitting, I think. But that's a great point about players and coaches. And, you know, the old line that says about teachers, too, those who can do and those who can't teach. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily true at all. I mean, the greatest teachers, that in itself is a creative enterprise, like a great editor. A great editor doesn't have to have been a great writer. And writers sometimes make terrible editors. Yes. Yeah. I have I have tried it myself and it's terrible because you're always trying to impose your will upon the other person's work. And that's not what editing is. Editing is a creative collaboration. And also, right, going back to the example of coaching, you're trying to bring the best out of someone else rather than trying to impose some part of playing style on them, right? Yeah. It's the same thing with editing. Yeah. yeah. You're th if you edit, and I've had, by the way, and no offense to any of my editors, but I've had that before, yeah. where an editor would give me like a, a whole like streak of red pages and I would look at it and I'd be like, this is all stylistic. Like, why are you changing this? That's not how I write. That's not what I want to bring out to the world. And, but the thinking is, well, you know, it's very black and white. Well, well this is the right way of doing it. I'm like, no, that's your way yeah. of doing it. No. And the same with the sports analogy and the, and the, Creative, yes. Imagine like with a composer, somebody else. I and mean, we we could all rewrite Beethoven and Shakespeare, fine. But they wrote the way and and composed the way they do, and we do it the way that we do it. And that that individuality is what makes for the for the glorious diversity of the human species. Yep, I love that, and an individualized way of knowing when and when not to quit. Yep. Yes. All right, Alan. Final questions for Julia before we wrap up. Well, first of all, before even the question, I do have to say I really enjoyed your book. It got me thinking about different things in life that I really probably should consider quitting. Uh, definitely, <laughs> I guess I won't get too into it, not to make it, but I definitely I needed this book. I will definitely say that. And I think it's going to, I think a lot of people should definitely check it out. Uh, definitely spoke to me in many ways. Um, and I, I, I guess what I want to ask is if we wanted to, you know, uh, buy the book and, and follow your work, uh, how could we do that? You know, you can find it uh, really any of the usual major outlets at your at your favorite local independent bookstore or Barnes and Noble on uh, Amazon. Um, also at, at libraries. I'm a, I'm a great uh, I'm a great uh, a promoter of libraries, even though um, uh, the writers, we always wince a little bit and we say, yeah, fine, get it at the library. You know, I'm trying to make a living here. My, I'd like my dog to be able to have some dog child tonight, but please, yeah, you go to the library. Um, but no, in, all seriousness, in all seriousness, I appreciate, I appreciate hearing that. I was a little leery, you know, I've written uh, many books. I have a, I have a mystery series and I wrote a biography of Richard Jordan Gatling, who invented the Gatling gun. So I've written a lot of books. And this was the first time I had a book where the editor kept saying, well, this is a self-help book. And I would just, ah, no, no, no. Cause I don't, I, you know, I critique self-help books as you know, but on the other hand, when I would reread it, I would think to myself, well, darn it. Yeah, there is this aspect of, there's nothing wrong with, with trying to give people a new perspective from which to view their lives. And again, to get rid of the shame, because I have family members who, um, as we all have pe people in our lives who, who, who struggle with various um, ailments, maladies, things they can't 
can't can't give up or trying to um, maybe backslide and try again. But quitting really goes across the board. It strikes at the heart of so many of our lives. And to try to give people a new perspective on that and to maybe to not feel quite so bad about themselves if there are things they're not able to give up that they want to or things that they should give up that they're seeking the courage to be able to quit on. Um, there's nothing wrong with that and nothing yeah. uh, nothing to be ashamed of in doing that. So I have come around to thinking, okay, maybe not so bad, but I, I do appreciate hearing that because I know even writing the book did that for me as well. It gave me a, it gave me a new way to kind of judge what I was doing. You know, I gave up uh, journalism about 10 years ago and I've been writing books since then. And I don't know, sometimes I'm not sure that that works out so well because the, the sitting alone all day, you know, the old joke that when you're a writer, you have homework for life. That's what <laughs> it's so true. And I keep thinking, so maybe it's time to do something other than that or parlay that into something else, do that quasi quitting by increments, as you mentioned. So it's, it's advice I very much take to heart. And it's also an ongoing dynamic process. It never ends. This business of trying to know when to quit or not quit, when to stay the course, when to alter the course is it is a lifetime journey and you never get to the end of it. Right. There's no definitive answer. Essentially, you could even change your mind at some later point. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make us kind of, um, you know, wobbly. It doesn't make us um, weak. It just makes us human. I love it. Julia, thank you so much for coming on. This, this was is excellent. Awesome. Excellent. Oh, thank you, fellas. A, a sheer delight. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. See ya. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. So everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. We're at Facebook at Seize the Moment Podcast on Instagram. On Twitter, we're Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe. Hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.